Hello and welcome to Notes from the Conservatory, a podcast from the Bob Cole Conservatory of Music at California State University, Long Beach. I'm your host, Richard Cooper. This podcast is a chronicle of conversations and interviews with our faculty, students, and guest artists. This is another of our Stranded series, where I ask my guest which three pieces of music they would take with them to a desert island. Today, my guest is Dr. Roger Hickman, who teaches classes in musicology, music history, and the humanities. He's a specialist in music of the classical era, performance practices, and more recently, of film music. He has written several articles for the New Grove Dictionary of Music, and he has written two books, Miklos Rosa's Ben-Hur and Real Music, Exploring a Hundred Years of Film Music. He's conducted in concert halls around the world, including Carnegie Hall and the Sydney Opera House. Now here's my conversation with Roger Hickman. Well, first, tell me about where you're from. I'm from uh, Fullerton. I was raised there. I went to Troy High School, and then I went far, far away to college, UC Irvine. After I finished that up, a degree in violin playing, basically, I decided to go in academia, so I got an offer of scholarship at Berkeley, so I moved up there to go to school. And viola? Um, No, in music history. Yeah, I I never had a viola lesson in my life, but once I got through school, I'd say two-thirds of my jobs were playing viola. And it was nice to play viola because the contractors tend to call you first if you play two different instruments. So I, I got a lot of viola playing in. What else did you play? Violin. And it turned out to be quite useful. I mean, in Berkeley, there was not a lot of time to play, though we did some. Uh, but when I got my first job, which was the University of Hawaii, I was very excited. What it was going to be was Bates College, Maine, and they offered $12,000 a year. And then uh, the funding fell through, and I think I was I was didn't know if twelve thousand would make it or not. But then Hawaii called, and they offered me sixteen thousand, and I'm going, whoa! I get Hawaii plus a raise of four thousand dollars, and that's when you learn about uh, cost of living. And so that's well, it's nice to be a musician because you can say, okay, by daytime professor, by nighttime I gig, I teach violin lessons and do whatever I have to do to, to make it. How long were you uh, in Hawaii? Five years. And you liked it? I loved it, but it's not a great place to raise a family. The schools are better here, and there's less cultural violence. Mm. I mean, it's a big oh. city after all. So where'd you come? You come back here after that? Yes, I teach you here. I've been for a couple of years as a visiting professor, and then I needed a job. Because I had turned down the, the tenure job at Hawaii, and uh, I was at a John Cage gathering, and John Cage was there, and, and lo and behold, uh, two faculty members from uh, this school came up, Chris Forney and Justice Matthews, and said, we just lost our musicology teacher. Would you be interested in teaching as a lecture? And I just felt like I was in the right place at the right time. So I said, good, I'm there. What year was that? That'd be 87. I was... Uh, primarily violinist and thought of myself a violinist. But at some point when I was practicing four hours a day uh, in the practice room and I never seen the light of day basically, between that and rehearsals, I just said, you know, this is not as much fun as it's cracked up to be. I must be laying bricks somewhere. And uh, so that's when I got sort of interested in music history because it's a fascinating field. And you get to listen to a lot of music and talk about music and learn different approaches. So I found it very appealing. Tell me about your courses. Well, music history, basically. Uh, I think sometimes we get our terms too confused. Uh, musicology is not a very good term. It makes it sound like we're doing something like a scientist and a mad scientist and mixing things together. And even music history is not my favorite because uh, no one likes history. 
<laughs> and honestly, I, I, the last thing I want to go teach is uh, who somebody studied with when they're two years old. That kind of history doesn't interest me. It's just a music course. Mm. And what we do is focus on repertoire music and what makes Beethoven sound Beethoven, or Handel sound like Handel, and what the differences are, and, and their major pieces. Things that most educated musicians should know something about. So we have um, music major courses, and then we have graduate seminars, which are quite fun. I always like to see the graduate seminar as the halfway house uh, between being a student and being a faculty member themselves. So I try to get them to talk as much as possible, get them used to standing up and explaining music and analyzing it. So we're doing a Bach seminar now, which is a lot of fun. Bach is such a great composer and it's overwhelming. I was actually hired to be the uh, non-major coordinator, but Chris Forney owned the 90 courses, and so I did some criticism classes and humanities classes and brought in that direction, and eventually the film music class. Mm -hmm. Well, which I want to talk about, but before we do that, I want to ask about your musical heroes, who, you're, who you really love. Oh, musical heroes? I mean, I, I love Stravinsky, and one of the reasons I love Stravinsky is because he wasn't a child prodigy. You know, and I, I get so tired of reading that so-and-so was two years old and doing this, and Chopin was doing this, but he's 10. You know, uh, what chance do the rest of us have against that? But here's a guy who decides at 20 that he wants to be a composer. And he hasn't had any formal lessons, and he's just maybe sung a little bit, but he has seven decades of outstanding music in front of him. So um, that's kind of mine, one of my heroes. All right, before we go on, tell me about film music. How did film music become such a huge part of your life? Well, actually, I hope it's all right to say this, but uh, no one's ever going to listen to this, are they? <laughs> John Carnahan was chairman and just sort of walked up and stuck his arm around me and said, you know, the art history classes are killing us. They're getting all this enrollment that could be us, and our classes are dwindling. Can you think of anything that can attract more students? And so I said, well, you know, in my humanities class, every time I do a section on film and music, everybody's really excited. So I never likes to watch movies, so why don't I just do a movie class? And I was sort of tossing this off before I realized how fascinating the topic this was. And then I started preparing a class and studying the music and just go, wow, this is some really great stuff out there. So I got more excited and put together a textbook for my class just on my own. And then Norton Chris called and said, you know, we're looking for somebody to create a textbook for us. So that's where I got started on the Norton path. And your textbook is very popular apparently, right? Uh, it's doing well yeah. in Canada, East Coast. Yeah. All right. So what, what's your first piece? The first thought was to get something that's a beautiful piece of music. And so I went to the Schubert cello quintet first movement, which is dynamite material over. And it has a good range of moods, too. So that'd be something that'd be worth listening to and very enjoyable. Okay, a particular performance that you can think of? Uh, the Weller Quartet, our quintet, mm -hmm. is really terrific. Okay. So now tell me about why. Like, why, why is this piece so special to you? It shows Schubert at his best, and it's very classically oriented. I mean, the first three chords set up the whole rest of the piece, and it just goes from consonants, dissonance, and back to consonants. Uh, wonderful sound. And then you have the, the interplay of the five instruments, which he does very uniquely, sometimes doubling the cello so it has this enormous bass sound, and uh, really beautiful. The second theme is like the Unfinished Symphony first movement. It just uh, falls a third, and it's very leisurely dance-like, and all of a sudden, poof, it drops again to the dominant, and uh, what a wonderful effect. Mm -hmm. So harmonically, melodically, dramatically, I just think it's a terrific piece. Do you remember when you first encountered it? Yeah, in my music history class when I was an undergraduate, my teacher, Colin Slim, played it for us and said, you know, if I was ever on a desert island, this would be the one piece I'd take. <laughs> and that's always stuck with me, and said, you know, he's right. 
Okay, and what was your second choice? Well, I had originally thought of going with the Jupiter, uh, finale of the Jupiter by Mozart, because it's just such a great piece, and you can listen to it over and over again. But I, I, I changed my mind as we sat here. I think I'll go Fingal's Cave by Mendelssohn. Why is that? Well, I'm in Desert Island. <laughs> it's got waves and water and everything you need about it. And it's a wonderful piece of music. It's a delightful sonata form, and it's got the gorgeous second theme. Donald Toby says was the best melody ever written in the 19th century. Uh, just, it's gorgeous. It is so ingenious that the march, like development section, how it builds, and then the spectacular recap, and then just closing with clarinets, sort of fading away, just... Not bad for a 20-year-old kid. Again, do you have a particular performance of that one, you think? Uh, yeah, my own. I got started that way. It was a mall concert, and I played in the Irvine Symphony, and I played viola. Uh, the conductor called me the day before the concert and said, I am sick as a dog. I need somebody to conduct. And I go, yeah, I'll do it. And I, I said, I'm, thank you for asking me first. He said, I didn't ask you first. I asked you last. You're only a fool enough to take this. But there I was. Uh, it was an hour and a half worth of music, and we had an hour rehearsal ahead of time. And if I haven't studied conducting, I've studied a lot of conductors. And I know all the mistakes. <laughs> so I knew, don't do the big stuff. Don't try to shape it. Tell them where the repeats are. Get the road work down. We got it down, and they played. And then we did, I think it was K was one of them, and so I was able to cue. The other conductor never liked to cue at all. And so they seemed to like me. And then I got a call about two days later, and, and the main conductor said, you know, I can't be a director and conductor at the same time. It's killing me. So you take over. Next thing you know, I'm in the Orange County Performing Arts Center. I've got Bob Hope. I'm doing a show with him. And Sidney Weiss, who's a concert master of the L.A. Phil's, doing Beethoven Violin Concerto. Charles Rosen, the great pianist, come over and did Beethoven Fifth. So it was just, wow. I, got, I mean, I started conducting at the top. And your third choice would be? Well, the one that came to mind most. And it's because it's not only the music and how beautiful it is or how many times you can listen to it, but music, we're special. We, get, we have associations with pieces of music. That is, um, we often remember who we were with, who we may play this with, or who the first person that was sitting next to when I heard this piece. Maybe there's a romantic moment and that piece was playing. You know, you have all these associations that you can put into a, a piece of music. And when you hear that piece of music, those swell up too. So that's why I was going with the Tchaikovsky Symphony Number no. 6, the third movement, Pathetique Symphony, primarily because my next lucky stumble was my second year here at Cal State Long Beach and Ron Sindelar, who was chairman. And he came and said, this is 10 days before the semester started, and I have to already prepare all my classes. But he said, bad news, our conductor, Akira Indo, just left us. And I started staring at him like, what, so? Then he said, you're the only person who knows where the cellos sit on our staff. And I'm just like, oh no, really? Uh, you want me to take over a big program like this from no scratch? And I said, yeah, and you can pick all the repertoire you want, but we have the first concert in five weeks, and they've all been promised the Pathetic Symphony of Tchaikovsky. And, of course, I'm dying here. I'm a Berkeley guy. We don't like Tchaikovsky. We don't listen to Tchaikovsky. Why don't, why don't people from Berkeley like Tchaikovsky? Well, I mean, I was raised in the modernist era. Yeah, and so my teachers are all with modernist critics, and there's kind of an unwritten philosophy. If people like music, it can't be any good. People like poppy music. No, we don't pay any attention to it. We like Rachmaninoff. enough. No, one of my friends wanted to do a dissertation to Dvorak, and they said it wasn't substantial enough. <laughs> Thank God for the postmodern era where we can actually study these. So it wasn't just Tchaikovsky, it was anything from. Yeah, well, I, I learned my lesson because I just suddenly loved Tchaikovsky. 
And I just got to see that he's a much better composer than my Berkeley teachers. And he's got much more depth, and he's not just tunes and climaxes. He's got some good stuff going there, harmonies. There's a thing in one of my comp students, I always tell them that John Cage, his music is much better than it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's that's kind of like Joseph Kerman comment. He would say, Wagner is better than he sounds, Buccini sounds better than he is. I like that. <laughs> a little nasty self. Yeah. Then I sort of packed that one to the first rehearsal, and there we had ten flute players show up, eight trumpet players, and six violinists. <laughs> I said, all right, now I've got four, four and a half weeks to try to put an auction together. And so it was like mad and trying to recruit, which is I don't know about recruiting by that point. So I finally got it to eight first and six seconds, which was reasonable. And the cellos are good, and who cares about the violas? No, they were, they were all right, too. Solid group. The trouble is when you need the students more than they need you, you're at their mercy. You can't say, if you don't show up, you're fired. We didn't have one rehearsal with everybody there. I was frustrated because you, you get something just right. Ah, that's what I want. The next rehearsal falls apart. And this is some tricky music there. So uh, the students were a little bit frustrated as well. So they asked and said, um, we got an idea. We want to have a rehearsal at midnight, the day of the concert can imagine that and everybody's no one has an excuse for not being there and everybody said they would be there but we need you of course and I what can I say all right I'll do it but you can imagine people just aren't alert at like one o'clock so by two o'clock I uh, I said that's it this no more blood on this turnip and what can I I don't how would I say this delicately there's when musicians get depressed they like to drink and so somebody said hey let's go eat a drink and a lot of students said, yeah, that's a great idea. Then one student said, but what bar is going to be open on Sunday at 2.30? And Richard Atkins, wonderful violinist, I know a place. So we all followed him. And so here I am leading, let's say, at least about half my orchestra into a bar. And it's a gay bar. And at that time, my, my sensibilities were not like they are now. I'm going, oh, my God. I can see my Ph.D. going out the window right now. But... That went fine, and we had good service, and everybody enjoyed themselves. I got home at four, slept a little bit, but I was embarrassed by the concert because I had failed the kids, I failed the, my responsibilities to get an orchestra together. And uh, then they had the concert. I was just trying to get through it as fast as possible. I don't want to say anything to the audience. I'm just going to walk up there, conduct, and hope for a better time next concert. You're in the middle of conducting, and you look around saying, who are these people? It looked like the students we were rehearsing with, but now not playing like that at all. They were just playing way over their heads. And the third movement, when we got to it, which is this rollicking brass finish and all this stuff, was the feeling that it was tight. That the first time that everybody was together, sort of unified as one. And those who conduct ensembles would hold sometimes that feeling went, whew, I could take any tempo I wanted. I could tell them to be quiet when it's loud or anything that would follow. So it was a really nice feeling. And from that, that group I've grown up with, in terms of, we're long gone by now, but a lot of them still play in our Nutcracker Orchestra, so we have a call our family reunion every Christmas. So that piece will always remind me of those kids. And it's a fascinating movement because it's a, a hybrid. It's, it's a scherzo. It's a third movement, and it should be a scherzo. But then it turns to a march. First theme, scherzo. Second theme, march. And the march builds all this tension. And then when it comes back, there's no development section. Scherzo, march. And by the end, it's just pop, 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 pop. And then the last movement is slow and somber. So it's like Tchaikovsky reversed 
I was very glad that we got a good ovation after the third movement, even though you're not supposed to clap between movements. And I was very glad that they didn't clap much for the last movement, just because it's very somber. Dies away. To me, it's a Tchaikovsky's suicide note, because he dies two weeks later. The story is that um, he died from drinking unboiled water during a cholera epidemic. But uh, when 1980, when the Iron Curtain started to raise, a musicologist from Russia said, well, he had a suicide note. His friends had asked him to commit suicide because he was homosexual and had an affair with a young man uh, who was a government official, and left that speculation. I mean, after getting the note, and suddenly he dies in these mysterious circumstances. And I couple that with the pathetic, thinking that would be a very somber way to go out and say, I'm, I'm out of here. Maybe going to a gay bar after rehearsal was appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> very good. Uh, yeah, nice segue. How long did you conduct the orchestra here? Five years. And by the time you were done, did you have a full orchestra? Oh, yeah. I recruited a pretty good orchestra by a couple of years. Our biggest problem was after DRH collapsed, the roof fell in. Oh, you were, you were conducting that? Yeah. And so we had no place to rehearse. And they shut down all these buildings here, so we had to rehearse in this uh, old Gold's Gym that was abandoned and smelled badly and no acoustics whatsoever. So we started losing a little bit of steam during that era. So what are you working on right now? You've finished your, your books out there and it's doing well. What's your current project? I've, I've really enjoyed getting that second edition done. It's like doing a sequel to a movie. This time I'm going to do it right. <laughs> get everything I wanted to say, then think, fix things I didn't quite say well enough, and then I got to expand into more recent movies, so uh, it's updated to the newest Star Wars, so that was fun. Uh, since then, mainly working on a book on film noir right. and its music. It's a very interesting topic, and I like it because it's not a preset body of films. It makes you look at B films, A films, and a lot of composers I never heard of. Whereas normally, if I want to study Steiner, I only do Steiner scores, and I don't see what film was really going on at that time. So you get a much better understanding of what's the, the progress of the 40s and 50s in filmmaking and film scoring. And uh, besides, the stories tend to be really good. <laughs> also, since you're an acknowledged expert on film music, what's going on in film music? What's the state of the art right now, or where are we? Well, I was struggling how to address the modern approaches to film scoring, because personally it's not my favorite approaches, but I don't want to stay that book. I mean, that's not my job. But it's, it sort of dawned on me what we've entered is a, a minimalism has a f impacted filmmaking. Mm -hmm. I really maybe started with Shawshank Redemption, which uses it in a very interesting new way to make it feel like he's trapped in this prison. Then it started moving into action films. And The Matrix, and to my mind, is the first one to really introduce minimalism for action scenes. And then that was picked up, uh, and you start to get a point where you don't need an orchestra, you just need drums. Get a taiko drum set and just start banging on them, and you got an action scene going on. So I, I like to juxtapose the, the John Williams action films with even like Skyfall, where, where there's just nothing, no thematic references at all, they're just lots of sounds. So lastly, I always invite my castaways to uh, take one book with them. Uh, probably a book of short stories, but maybe one of our noir writers from the mid-30s and be able to have a variety of stories and, and some of them were quite fun and interesting. Like Chandler, Twist. Blaine, yeah. something like that. Yeah. yeah. All right, well, thank you very much for allowing me to cast you away. <laughs> thank you. Glad to get back to this has been Notes from the Conservatory from the Bob Cole Conservatory of Music at California State University, Long Beach. Thanks for listening.